Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's good to come back to this church and have opportunity to speak to you, especially I'm enjoying the opportunity to speak to you on the book of Revelation. Revelation is one of those books we're all fascinated with it. We just don't always understand it. And I've been teaching it as a class since 1983. I've had a lot of years to think about it, to try to work through the chapters and make sense of it. So it's a privilege for me to come and share a little bit of that with you in this uh, Sunday. Now, I'll preach to you this morning from just a small piece. This afternoon, if you're interested, come on back at 2 o'clock, and I'll do a workshop on chapters 4 and 5, Heavenly Worship, I entitled it, but I'll work through those chapters, the verses, and show you a lot of things there. And then I'll also have Q&A time. I'll open it up to questions, anything from chapter 1 to chapter 22. If you've got a question, bring it, and I'll try to answer your questions as best I can. So if that sounds interesting, come on back this afternoon. But this morning, let's take care of business now. Let's take a look at chapter 7. Verses 14 through 17 is where we'll focus this morning, Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to talk about when we all get to heaven. Now, now while you're finding that text, let me tell you a story from uh, way back in the 80s. I I was working at a a college, Bible college, and one evening I had the student body, and we were playing games. I I had come up with some games for us to play. I had us sitting in a circle, a large circle in in the room that we were in, and one of the games I came up with was a pantomime game. Now, the idea, as I explained it to the students, was imagine this, this invisible ball that could be shaped into any object you want. I said, when it's your turn, you take it, and you make something out of it, and then you stand there without words and, and use it, and see if everyone in the room can figure out what it is you're, you're doing. Now, once they get a chance to guess, then you hand it to the person next to you. They first have to use what you give them. And then they get to turn it into something they want, and they can stretch in anything they want at all and, and, and see if everybody can guess what it is, and then they pass it to the next person. Now, these are college students, which means they want to be funny. And so they were inventing all types of stuff as they went around the circle, and we were having a good laugh. Came around the circle, though. We came up on this fellow. He's a senior in college at the time. He got the chair next to this girl he'd been pursuing. Now, she had little interest in him, but he got the chair, and he was excited about that. So as it comes around the circle, it's his turn, and he gets the object, has to use it, so he does. And then he gets to turn it into anything he wants it to be. So what he did was he squeezed it down, and then he, he made a circle. Then he dropped one knee, and he took her hand, and he slipped it on her finger just like that. Oh, that was so nice. And then, and then of course, it's her turn. So she stands up. She takes it. now no words are spoken but I think everybody in the circle figured out what was going on we we knew what he was thinking and we knew what she was thinking it was pretty clear just by watching the story you had it figured out I tell you that because book revelation is like that for me Book Revelation is a, it's a collection of visions, but really these are drama visions. That is, actors come out on stage and they act out a drama in each of the chapters, and then you, the reader, the audience, you're supposed to figure out what it means. Just watch the action, see if you can figure out what it's, what it's teaching you. It's kind of like the parables of Jesus. Jesus told stories. And then you're supposed to take the stories and figure out what they mean. What's the spiritual truth there? And so, Book of Revelation is really a bunch of parables, except acted out in drama form, and then we get to figure out what it means. Now, you can do that through all the chapters, but I tell you, chapter 7, when you get down to the end of that chapter, that's one of the easy ones, or at least I think so, to look at the drama and figure out what it means. It starts in verse 9. John says, here's what I saw next. He saw, I, I said, I saw a great multitude. No one could count them. 
They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. He says they're dressed in white robes. They're holding palm branches and they're singing. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated upon the throne and to the Lamb. Now, I look at that, I think, well, that's, that's pretty clear. That looks like the gathering of all the saints of all the ages when we all get to heaven. Looks like we finally made it. And, and we're dressed in white, and white would certainly be a symbol of purity, but also in this book it's a symbol of victory. We, we've won. They've got the palm branches. That's a symbol of worship. Like on that Palm Sunday when they took the palm branches and they worshiped Jesus. Oh, I, I've seen things there that they look familiar to me, and I, I'm liking this. Now, in verse 13... One of the 24 elders turns to John and says, so what do you think this is? Who are these people in white? Who are they and where did they come from? Now, I think John's got a very good answer. He could guess the answer. He's the apostle John. He'd probably have a pretty good guess. He could guess the answer, maybe right, maybe wrong. He doesn't guess. He, he turns to the elder and says, sir, you must know. In other words, why don't you tell me who they are and what I should learn from this? And I thought that was a good answer. Well, the elder is pleased to give John something, and it's in verse 14. These are they who've come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I want to take that one verse, and I want to show you something this morning about how it works. If you envision that you would like to be part of that great multitude that's going to gather one day around the throne, you want to be there? This verse already tells you what you need to remember, what you need to do if you want to be a part of the gathering when we all get to heaven. The first thing it points out is this. You've you got to have a good start. You, if you're going to do anything in life, you've got to get started. And this one describes the good start if you want to finish in heaven around the throne of God. Now, the good start is described in the phrase where he says, they washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, back in the days when John wrote this passage, at the end of the first century, and he mentions the blood of the Lamb, actually out there in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, there were a whole bunch of religions, and many of those religions used blood in their rituals and ceremonies. There's some of those groups, we call them the mystery cults. They were very secretive groups. They practiced some kind of religion, but they wouldn't tell us about it. In fact, they were sworn to secrecy. If, you, if you're permitted to enter the group, you can't tell what goes on. Occasionally people left, though, and they would tell what happened, and they would describe some strange things. In fact, the initiation rituals, to join the groups, they often made you do some, quite a number of things, including some blood things. They might require that you drink blood to, as part of their religion. Or what some of them did, we're told, they would take blood, they'd kill an animal, and then you'd take the blood, and then you would take the blood, and you would put it all over your body, be immersed in the blood. Now, I don't know about you, I don't think I would have passed the test. I would have passed out. I, I'm not into blood. Don't care for that. Don't, wouldn't want to put it all over my body. That, that may be rough for me. And you know, Christianity, we talk a lot about blood, the blood of the Lamb. But when we talk about it, we don't actually use real blood in our services, but we do talk about the blood of the Lamb and the death of Christ and our salvation through His sacrificial death. You know, we'll, we'll, for example, we'll sing about it as we did this morning, we'll, and we'll, we'll preach about it, and we'll celebrate it in symbolism when we have the Lord's Supper. We'll take that little piece of bread, which represents His body broken, and we'll take the cup, which represents His blood that was shed for our salvation, and we'll remember the blood of Christ and His death through that symbolism. 
There's also something else we do in the church that brings us a reminder of His blood, His death, and that's Christian baptism. In Christian baptism, we have a symbol of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. That's how Paul speaks in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. He says, all of you who've been baptized into Christ, you were buried with Him in baptism and then raised to a brand new life. And that's a, that's a good picture of what happens in baptism. My old life is dead, and I come out a brand new person ready to get started on that road towards heaven. That's that good start, that good beginning that we talk about as we evangelize. You know, when we think about baptism, it is a good starting point. I mean, it, that's a good point for now. I've got the rest of my life to live for Christ as you come out of those waters to a brand new life. It's a good starting point. And it's a place that brings to mind the cleansing that comes through the death of Christ on the cross, the cleansing that comes through the blood of the Lamb. That's how, for example, the preacher explained it to Saul, the persecutor. You and I will later know him as the Apostle Paul, but, but right now he's Saul. And he, and he comes to the preacher in Acts 22, verse 16, what do I need to do? And the preacher says, you need to rise up and be baptized and wash away those sins as you call upon the name of the Lord. And that's really the promise of God's Word, that if we do what He says, oh, He will wash away our sins. And so we do. We come to Christ, and we repent of our sins, and we put our faith in Christ, and we are buried in the waters of baptism, and raised to a brand new start, and we believe the promise that our sins are washed away, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, the death of Christ on the cross. Now, in a room like this, I suspect most of you have done that at some point in the past. Good for you, because that was the good start that you needed to do. You needed to start that way, but there may be someone here who hasn't done that yet. Perhaps you've been thinking about it. You, you, you've been planning on it, but you haven't done it yet. Remember, there's always an open invitation. Every Sunday, there's an invitation for, for you to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, to repent of the sins, put your faith in Christ, be baptized in Christ, and then start with a brand new life with sins washed away, ready now to take off on that path toward heaven. And if you haven't done that, I'll encourage you to do so on this very day. Because if you want to make it to the great multitude that's going to gather one day, you've got to get off to a good start. Now, more than a good start, though, you've got to have a strong finish. I mean, you can start something, and then the next thing you know, you're, you're not in the race, you're out. No, 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 you've got to have a strong finish. And that's what John says in verse 14 with the phrase, these are the ones who have come through great tribulation. Now, sometimes when people today read that passage, and they see that phrase, great tribulation, next thing you know, they're speculating about the end times. Now, I'm not an end times speculator. I'm one of those people that says, hey, listen, it, it'll happen when it happens, however it happens, and what do I care? I'm just going to take care of today. And, and when the end comes, then we'll finally see if anybody had it right. I mean, everybody's got their charts and their guesses and their opinions, and, and that's what they are because who knows the future except God himself, and so everybody's got their ideas. So what I'll do, I, I just take care of today, and then one day Christ return, and we'll find out if anybody actually had it right. I wouldn't be surprised if all of us missed it. It doesn't matter, though. It's going to come, but don't take a passage like this and then start thinking about the end times because this idea of a great tribulation period with all types of troubles, well, that's not what John's talking about. When John is writing in the first century, he's writing to the first century church about their life and their issues and their struggles. And when he talks about great tribulation, what he's talking about is the great tribulation that every one of us has to go through in this life. Both back in their day and in our day, life is filled with great tribulation. It's just a fact of life that life has troubles. 
Now, you know that to be true. Because in every one of your life, you've had your times of trouble, your times of sadness and grief, the times when you were hurt, the times of great tribulation. It's just the way it is. You know, when John starts this book in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John introduces himself this way. He says, I'm John, and I share with you in three things. Now, the three things, tribulation, and the kingdom, and perseverance. Now, those three things are really the theme of the book of Revelation, if you think about it. First, tribulation. Life is filled with troubles. And the book of Revelation will talk about the troubles of this life, usually with symbols, with creative images, but it describes the troubles that we encounter time and time again. But then, the kingdom. All of us are looking forward to the day when we can gather around the throne in heaven, stand before God and the Lamb, and our troubles will be behind us now. The troubles are over. But to get from the world of troubles that we live in today to this kingdom that is yet to come requires the third piece, and that is perseverance, faithfulness. It's only those who remain faithful in their lives all the way through those troubles who finally one day make it to the kingdom. And thus, this book was written to encourage Christians then and today to remain faithful and true to our commitment to Christ, to never give up, never quit, no matter how discouraged we may become, but persevere until we make it to the end. And that's why you've got to have that good start, but you've got to have a strong finish or you'll never enjoy the blessings of heaven. Now, that makes sense. And in this book, then, he'll give you examples of the kind of obstacles that will get in your way, the things that will try to de deter you from your, your course, but you're supposed to push through and trust God and, and continue on. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb opens up the scroll that has the seven seals. And every time he pops open one of the seals, then it, it opens up to us a tribulation of this life, one of the tribulations that are commonplace that we have to deal with as Christians. We'll have to suffer through these. Take, for example, seal number two. There's a rider. He's on a red horse. He's got a large sword, and it says he goes forth to wage war. Now, that's one of the easy seals, easy symbols, because it's the symbol of war. If you're thinking, now, which war? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's the symbol of war. Because, you see, there's a lesson to be learned there. When war comes, it brings a lot of death and destruction. And being a Christian does not give you some special exemption so that war does not touch you. So you've noticed this in life, that when the bullets are flying and the bombs are dropping, it's not the unbelievers who get killed, but Christians are spared. Oh, no, Christians will die in war just like the unbelievers. And we'll have our funeral services back home for a good Christian man or woman who died in war. You see, God doesn't necessarily give us any special exemption from the tribulation of this life. No, we have to deal with them. We have to live through them. But what we're told is to be faithful, to, to remain faithful even in spite of the tribulations that come. And when war comes, it will take its toll. But don't let that discourage you. Stay faithful and true to God. Seal number three is a horse, and the rider, he's got scales. He's trying to balance them. Boy, he's having a hard time making them balance because he, he, on one side, he'll here be a day's wage, but on the other side, hardly enough to feed himself, and so he's going to have to settle for something less if he's going to feed his family. Boy, this is, this is a good symbol of those hard times in life when it's hard to make a living, hard to provide for yourself, and that can show up in so many different ways. For example, the economy drops, and now our money's not worth what it used to be. Or the factory's laying off and the jobs are, are getting rid of people and it's hard to find another job to take the place of one you just lost. There, there are times in life when we get an economic turndown. Turn and have you noticed that being a Christian doesn't exempt you from that? 
Everybody else at the factory got laid off, but I get to keep my job because I'm a Christian. It doesn't work that way. No, no, when hard times come, it, it, it hits all of us, including those of us who are followers of Christ. So what's Revelation trying to teach us? When the difficult times come, you're going to have to work your way through it. God will be there with you to help you get through, but be faithful and, and don't give up. Don't quit because of the hard times. If, if you want to make it to the joys of heaven, you've got to continue in your faith. Seal number four in those seven seals, I always think about this when I get on a plane. I, I go back to this lesson. See, the seal four describes death and Hades. And I think the meaning of that seal is death on a large scale. When death happens at a moment and a whole bunch of people die all at once. Now you think about it. Death happens every day. All through the day somebody dies. We kind of get used to that. I mean, we expect it. We know it's coming. Every one of us will have our day when we will die. What we like to imagine is we'll live to a ripe old age and then at some point go to sleep and, and it's over. That's what we would like. But you know what happens? Well, the news will tell us. Ever so often, though, what happens is it's not people who are living until they're old and then they die, but some tragedy happens, and old, middle, and young are killed in this catastrophe. Like, for example, a plane. And the plane crashes with 200-something people on. And listen, folks, when a plane crashes, being a Christian doesn't mean you walk away while everybody else dies. You, you die with them. Or, or to be in a building and it's on fire and the whole building collapses, everyone dies, including the Christians. Or to be in a building when planes crash into it and it comes crashing down, you all die. You know, when death happens like that, death on a large scale, that unnerves us. That makes us uncomfortable. I mean, we're used to the idea that death will come in its day. But, you know, in those situations, there's nothing you can do about it. And you weren't ready. This is not supposed to be my day. I'm in this plane. I, I should be living for years. But if the plane is going down and death has now come. And so when those news stories hit, and we hear about a tsunami here, an earthquake there, and we hear about ca casualties in the hundreds and the thousands, oh, we listen to those stories. And we want to know more. We want to know more because those kind of situations are, well, they're kind of unnerving. Because you have no control at that point. Now death just comes and you don't get to walk away because you're a Christian. You're, you're now going to die with everyone else. You know, that's a fact of life. We know that and Revelation teaches that. That when the tribulations of life come your way, you don't necessarily get to escape them because you're a believer in Christ. No, there are no special exemptions for us. Rather, we have to face the troubles of this life and our faith will be challenged by those troubles, but... The key is that we endure, that we persevere, that we remain faithful so that we can make it to that finish line. That's what the book of Revelation is trying to teach us. What I encourage is this. You need a faith like, like Job. Now, not Job of chapter 1 and 2. Job in chapter 1 and 2, that's about as far as most of us ever read, and then we just stop. Because in the first two chapters, that's the story of all the troubles that come his way and all the suffering he experiences. And Job, oh, he sounds so, he sounds so godly. Well, this is the will of the Lord. This is the hand of God. And we have to learn to accept what God gives us. Now, that's only the first two chapters he talks like that. Later in the book, he, he's not so happy. Fact is, he's starting to go through the emotions, the stages of grief that we go through every time troubles come. And he can get, well, downright angry. He, he can turn to God and say, God, this is not right. I don't deserve this. I'm a good man, and this is, this is not what I ought to get. And he'll start to really say some strong things. But, you know, when he talks in those later chapters, now that's more real. That's how you and I feel when troubles come. We're not happy. We're sad. We're angry. We're all those different emotions we go through as the tragedies of life hit us. That's, that's normal dealing with grief. Now, here's what Job will do, though. 
Job will express everything he's feeling. He'll tell God, I don't like what you're doing. This is not right, and I don't deserve this. But here's what Job always says. He says, but I'm not going to leave you. You're still my God. You're the only God, and I'm going to stay with you no matter what you do to me. Now, see, that's the faith of a Job who no matter what happens and no matter how you feel about it, you refuse to give up and quit. But you're going to stay the course all the way to the very end. Folks, that's what it takes if you want to make it to heaven. You've got to be strong all the way to the finish. One of the things I do for fun, if you can count this as fun, is I run marathons, the uh, 26.2-mile marathon. Now, my wife has a different definition of what that is. And she, it's not the word fun. But, but for me, it's a nice challenge. I enjoy doing it. Now, if you know anything about marathon running, it's well-suited for someone like me, that is, my age, because it's not about trying to outrun somebody. You don't even care about anybody else. It's about you going from point A to point B and making it all the way to the end. And so that's what it's all about. It's just finishing. And that being the case, whether you have to run slower or take some walking breaks or whatever, it's just a matter of can I make it to the end. And the neat thing about marathons is everyone who crosses the finish line gets a finisher's medal. See, it's not like those sprints where only the first place, second place, third place get something. No, no. Everyone who makes it to the end gets a finisher's medal because you made it. You toughed it out to the end. I think the Christian life is more like that. It's not like a sprint and a few of us get a prize. No, no. Every one of us, if we tough it out and stay the course and make it to the very end, we get the finisher's medal. We, we get the prize. And that's why I think John describes the Christian life the way he does. You've got to get off to a good start. If you don't even start, you're not going to get anything at the end. But once you get the good start, you've got to stay true through the tribulation of life and persevere all the way to the end, and then you get the finisher's prize. Or as he says in chapter 2, verse 10, you be faithful until death. I'll give you the crown of life, the victor's prize, and that's how the Christian life should be imagined. And folks, that's my word of encouragement for you this morning, is that you get that race started, and you every day just keep moving forward and moving forward and deal with whatever suffering comes your way and, and push through with faithfulness because if you do, you'll finally get the happy ending. See, that's what happens when I get off to a good start and I have that strong finish. I get the happy ending, and the happy ending is described in verses 15, 16, and 17. What John does for us is in three verses summarize what heaven's going to be like. Now, later in the book, chapter 21, 22, John will take two chapters and describe heaven. A lot more detail, a lot more fun to work through. But just in these three verses, he'll give you an idea of what heaven looks like. For example, in verse 15, he describes heaven as the fellowship of God, a place where we are in fellowship with God as we stand in His presence. He says in verse 10, of those who are dressed in white, he says, therefore, they are before His throne, and they will serve in his temple day and night, and he who sits upon the throne will spread his tent over them. Now, that's three different things, but each one captures the idea of standing in the presence of God, enjoying his fellowship in a way you've never experienced before. Take that first one. They will stand before his throne. So that's what you and I dream about is the day when we actually get to stand in the presence of God before His throne, and as the Scriptures like to say, and see Him face to face. Right now, we, it, by faith, envision Him, but then I actually get to stand before His glory. Well, that's a great way to describe heaven. Or, or the next phrase says, and they will serve Him day and night in His temple. Do you remember how the temple operated? The temple was the building that represented the presence of God, but the problem was you always had to stay back at a distance. 
If you're the average person, you stayed out in the courtyard. You weren't even permitted inside the building. If you were a priest, you could go in the first room and do some of the services of the temple, but you couldn't go in the inner chamber where God's Spirit dwelt. You had to just stay on the outside. And if you were the high priest, you were the one person who could go to the inner chamber where God's presence dwelt. But even then, you could only do it one day in the year, Day of Atonement. Stay for a few minutes, then you had to leave. You see, in the Old Testament age, you saw where God was, but you saw it from a distance. Here's what heaven is. He invites you to come on in. Come on in right where I am, and you'll stay here day and night. I'm not going to ask you to leave, but you'll dwell here forever and serve me. I like that. Or I like that idea, and he will spread his tent over them. Now, perhaps you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're you're talking about tents? I thought when we got to heaven, we'd live in mansions. What a bummer. I got to live in a tent? Oh, you're missing the imagery here. Focus on the, on the meaning of the symbol. See, to be invited into someone's tent, oh, that's a good thing. Go back to the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they lived in tents. Now, when they lived in tents, they didn't have this big circus tent, and everybody lives in the same tent. No, no, no. It was a caravan of tents. Abraham would have his tent. A, a wife would have her tent. The older children would have their tents, and, and the extended family, the relatives, and the servants, and there'd be a a bunch of tents. But suppose Abraham one evening wanted to spend an evening with his wife, Sarah. He'd invite her into his tent, and the husband and wife would have an evening of intimacy. Or perhaps one of the children would come to the parent and say, I'm scared. Can Can I stay in your tent tonight? And they'd bring the child in, let the child sleep peacefully in their tent. Or perhaps an old friend from the old homeland is passing by on his camel and he said oh we got so much to talk about and visit won't you come into my tent for the evening let's sit down and let's talk you see to be invited into someone's tent is to be brought into a, a time of fellowship a, a time of intimacy and that's what God says when you get to heaven I'm going to open up my tent and invite you to come on in and let's spend some time together you, you see three different pictures there but all three teaching the same thing that when you get to heaven We'll move from this faith experience where we envision God to a sight experience where we're drawn into His presence in a more concrete way. And what a joy that'll be to enjoy the presence of God, the fellowship of God. Now, more than that, he talks about the goodness of God. That's what he says in these next verses. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. And the sun will not beat down upon them nor any scorching heat because the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and lead them to springs of living water. Now, that's the language that Isaiah uses in his prophecies he looks to the future. It's the language Revelation picks up on. And we're familiar with this in the book of Revelation, where it will take a whole bunch of bad things and just simply say, no more this, no more this, no more this. No hunger, no thirst, no pain, no suffering, no... Well, listen, folks, you, you know what life does. You know the tribulations of this life, the sufferings we have to endure. So why don't you make your own list? Make a list of all the things in this life that you don't like and then put a big no in front of it, and that's heaven. Heaven is where God gets rid of all the things this cursed world has, and He shares with us His goodness, and we enjoy His goodness. You know, I sometimes go through that list, and I wonder how's God going to pull it off. For example, no more hunger, no more thirst. Oh, I can imagine the possibilities. Perhaps he's going to give us these new heavenly bodies. They don't require food. They don't require any nourishment. Or here's another possibility that that we we do need to eat, but he's got buffet tables everywhere. If he puts it to a vote, I'm going to vote for plan B. I love that one. The idea that we could just eat and talk and laugh and have a great time for eternity. I love that. But you know what? It doesn't matter how he does it. It's just the promise that he will. 
There'll be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. I, I, I like that idea that God's goodness is just going to overwhelm us. Oh, we'll enjoy the fellowship of God. We'll enjoy the goodness of God. Oh, there's one more thing. We'll enjoy the comfort of God. That's what the last verse, the last phrase says. God will wipe the tears from your eyes. Now, you know, when you're hurting, when you're sad and sorrowful and grieving, there are more than one ways to comfort a person. We, we can comfort with words. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry for uh, what you've gone through. And words are good, but you know what's better than words? Touch. When they take your hand and hold your hand. When they put their arms around you and give you a good hug. Listen, folks, you don't even have to say a word. That, that just feels good to have somebody just give you a good hug. So can you imagine a friend who loves you so much that they're comfortable enough to put their arm around you, and then as a tear forms and the tear comes down on your cheek, they take their finger and they wipe the tear away. I know we sometimes say in heaven there'll be no tears, but I like the way John put it. He will wipe the tears from your eyes because that's a more personal touch approach to what God's got in store for us. See, God plans to be waiting for you when you finish this life of tribulation and troubles, when you work your way through all the stuff that life throws at you, and, and you're faithful to the very end, and He'll be waiting for you, ready to give you that big hug and ready to wipe the tears from your eyes. And He will fill your soul with a comfort that settles in so deep, it will get rid of all the sorrows you've ever felt, and it'll last for eternity. And that's a picture of heaven. A place where you'll enjoy the fellowship of God and the goodness of God and the comfort of God. And I'm thinking, what a place. I can't wait for that. Can you? Won't it be great when one day we get there? But listen, folks, if we're going to do it, we got to do what the Scriptures teach. you got to get off to a good start. And if you've not done that, you, you need to do so to repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ, and be baptized in Christ, and then get that Christian life started. And then you got to have that strong finish and stay faithful to the very end. And only then can you enjoy this happy ending. I hope this isn't the last time that we're together. I, I hope at the throne, every one of us in this room is gathered there, dressed in white, holding palm branches, and together we sing the songs about our salvation through Jesus Christ and through the blood that was shed. And I hope you plan to be part of that. And if you do, you know what to do. And I encourage you to this day to be faithful and true to your commitment to Christ, no matter what comes your way, so that one day we can all gather together in this place called heaven. Hey, won't you pray with me? Father God, we're so grateful for your word. Grateful, Father, for the encouragement it gives us, the promise it gives us, that those who do indeed start the path toward heaven and stay strong and finish no matter what life throws our way, that you do have something good waiting for us. You have blessings that we can hardly even imagine awaiting for those who are faithful to you all the way to the end. So, Father, please strengthen us, encourage us, help us to be faithful. Faithful to you and faithful to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you.